where I talk extemporaneously on a subject I know a decent amount about, usually on my drive to work, although today I am driving home from work. In any case, apologies for road noise, and uh, let's dive right in. So I was thinking I would... (sighs) Continuation is not really the right word because I don't want to keep talking in the same channel that I was last time. Um, I, it was my intent to talk about the Winterfell Crips and some of the mysterious details of that, that cave structure and the way it's laid out and the reasons it's laid out the way it is, um, backwards, some might say. Um, but I didn't really get there and I, I think in the process of talking I found more interesting subjects to cover. So, uh, in that same spirit of uh, frustrated intentions. Let's get into some other ice and fire theory and lore and, uh, you know, talk about if you're a, a show watcher or if you are a show watcher, who is still a show watcher? <laughs> um, who? This is kind of the wild thing. Um, for as gigantic a cultural force as Game of Thrones was in the teens in the last decade, it's gone now. (laughs) I mean, people, you know, okay, House of the Dragon came out last summer. Uh, I think that reinvigorated some, reinvigorated? Reinvigorated uh, some fan interest that had been, you know, kind of dead or dormant. And I talk about this in the last episode. Um, the fact that people move on, but they can always, like, you know, like, resuscitate an interest in a hobby that they once poured hours of, of attention into of their lives, is my belief. Um, so... So, so where was I going with all that? Um, I think uh, if if you were if you were anything short of an obsessive nerd like me, I, I coined that phrase last time, and I'm I'm sticking to it. I think it's a useful useful turn of phrase. Um, if you're anything short of obsessive nerd who like hangs out on the subreddits of a a book series that hasn't had a new entry in literally 12 years, uh, then maybe let me bring you up to speed on some interesting stuff. Um, Let's just jump around. Uh, I I don't have a list in front of me or a theory iceberg, but I think we can talk about um, 
some of the common fan theories. Uh, let's start with one that I'm particularly fond of. I don't know if it's true, but the theory is bolt-on. Um, and the, the crux of this theory is that Roose Bolton, a uh, professional creep, is not, in fact, a human. Um, well, okay, so the idea is because Roose Bolton is kind of a creepy, mysterious guy, uh, we, he briefly takes over Harrenhal um, after... So Harrenhal is kind of the base of operations because it's such a sprawling, gigantic castle. It's the base of operations for several small armies over the course of the War of Five Kings. So, um, you know, at first, uh, the, the mountains men take it over, um, and that's when Arya is there, uh, and then, uh, Tywin Lannister rolls in and, and says, nope, this castle's mine now, um, and then the, and that's kind of, like, while he's plotting, uh, is, is he plotting the Red Wedding at that stage? I don't know if that's yet really the case. Um, but things are in motion, for sure. Um, he's kind of licking his wounds. He's been defeated in battle after battle by Rob Stark and trying to, to figure out what comes next for him. If, if that's not where he's planning the Red Wedding, it's probably where the germ of the idea starts to... to uh, take root. Um, any case, so Tywin leaves, heads to, to King's Landing, and, uh, you know, relieves Tyrion of his badge of office, becomes the new hand of the king to Joffrey. Uh, so that's, that's Tywin. And then for a time, the control of Hall passes to, uh, a man named Vargo Hote, a mercenary, um, part of, uh, this kind of associate band of mercenaries called, oh god, I'm not gonna remember, um, it will come to me. They're a total rogues gallery, like, every one of them, absolute horror show, uh, and they're the people who you know, have Jamie and Brienne captured, brought to Heron Hall, and, you know, cut off Jamie's hand, kind of spitefully. It, you know, there's some weird things going on with them, too. Uh, the Brave Companions. Um, that's their name. The Brave Companions are kind of weird, because uh, they claim to want to sell Jamie back to Tywin for a, a hefty ransom. But if that's the idea, then you would think that uh, cutting off his sword hand could only piss them off? I mean, maybe. Maybe. Honestly, Tywin didn't really want any, any, like, strength at arms that Jamie had was, like, worthwhile to the, to Tywin in the sense that it brought glory to House Lannister. But at this stage of his career as a knight, Jamie is, you know, one of the, uh, Kingsguard. And Tywin, we know, did not want... Like, he tells Jamie, like, I, I am going to have you hang up your cloak. You know, it's not... It's not 
something that had really ever been done before, uh, Joffrey dismissing Ser Barristan. Um, in the past, aged uh, Kingsguard just were allowed to, you know, retain their post until death. Um, or were, you know, utilized in other ways, uh, more befitting their, you know, age and dwindling, you know, skill at arms. But, uh, so Jamie, you know, Tywin did not want him to be a knight. So maybe, you know, I don't know. I'm not going to say that the brave companions were, like, colluding with Tywin to dismember Jamie, but, uh, you know, it does not really make a lot of sense that they would cut off his hand uh, in any case. Like, yeah, he's still alive, but that's kind of a, a supreme insult. So I guess, yeah, like, cutting off Jamie's hand could give him the, you know, the instinct to come up with something else to do with his life than swordplay. Uh such as taking over as, as Tywin's heir at Casterly Rock. That's a possibility, but it's kind of... I don't know. Um, that's spurious. I, and anyway, it, it, it doesn't really matter why they did it, uh, but for, for the sake of my summary here, but yeah, Brave Companions. Uh, we, we get uh, uh, the Brave Companions... Uh, defect from Tywin to Rob, weirdly, but not, not exactly Rob. They defect to the northern side, but they are in the pocket of Roose Bolton. Um, Arya remains at... Am I getting the timeline messed up? Um, Arya observes, like, also serves as, as sort of a, a no, it's not Arya who observes this. She She's hanging out with Tywin at Heron Hall, but it's Jamie, I believe, or maybe Brienne, who observes Roose reading an ancient grimoire, some kind of, like, huge bound book, probably unique in all the world, loaded with secrets. Reading it, finishing the book, closing it, and putting it into a fireplace. <laughs> uh, it, it goes up in like a plume of flames and is gone. <laughs> and, huh, that's a little weird. Maybe that's just there to, to let us know that Roos is, uh, you know, Roos is working on the, the Game of Thrones, the secrets, the intrigue dimension, maybe even the magical dimension of our story. Um, he's definitely playing the same game that, like, Varys and Littlefinger and, um, you know, Magister Illyrio are, are playing. It's possible. Um, it's possible that's just to, to indicate that. Who knows what he learned from that book, but it's kind of creepy, right? Um, okay, anyway, so Roose Bolton, he then, you know, after the Red Wedding, he goes back to, and he's married a Frey woman. Um, also under pretty gross circumstances, uh, he, uh, you know, agrees with Walder Frey to receive 
and I might be getting this wrong because I don't fully understand how dowry works or bride uh, price or whatever it, however you call it, works, but in this story or in the real world, but um, he agrees with Walder Frey that um, as, as like the, the bridal gift or whatever from Lord Walder, uh, Roos will be paid the, the, the woman's weight in silver. So, you know, what does he do? Like, how does he game this system? You can probably guess. Uh, kind of icky. So he marries this woman, takes her back to, uh, I believe they go to the Dreadfort. Anyway, the timeline is not super important. What What is important is that he, uh, Ramsey has been active in the North. He, uh, you know, even before Roos returns to the North, after wrapping up his affairs in the Riverlands, uh, after the Red Wedding, um, Ramsey has been, like, causing absolute havoc. Uh, he, um, you know, takes Winterfell from Theon and burns it, uh, kills much of the populace and takes the rest back to the Dreadfort. Um, as far as we know, uh, Old Nan may be at the Dreadfort right now, which is poor Nan. Um, anyway, um, so, so Ramsey is just, like, on an absolute warpath, and everybody hates him, and Bruce even tries to instruct him. He's like, look, I know you have your, your gang of, like, murder friends, and uh, you love, like, just absolutely torturing the, the small folk, and um, you're responsible directly for the death of um, the wife of one of the lords who went on Rob's campaign. Yes, everybody hates you, but listen, uh, and he gives one of the best lines in the, in the series, I think, um, and I hope I get it right, I might paraphrase a little, but he says, a quiet land, a peaceful people, that has always been my rule, make it yours. Um, uh, you know, definitely, definitely a little fascistic, but is also kind of like, look, you want to stay in this job, you, you gotta, like, you gotta play it a little cooler than this. Um, and Ramsey absolutely does not do that. Um, at, you know, his wedding with the assembled, uh, remaining Lords of the North, some of whom have at least in name, defected to the Boltons um, and served the Boltons as their new liege lord after the supposed destruction of House Stark. Um, yeah, I mean... What, so the, the big question... I give all this backstory just to illustrate. The big question is, why does Roos, who seems to be a very careful, calculated individual, does not drink, does not drink alcohol... Not like that's a super villain trait or something, but like clearly he values keeping his wits about him. 
does not really have value for, uh, you know, the, the typical camaraderie of men of his station. Um, typical forms of, you know, expression of camaraderie. Um, Roos is very meticulous, and Ramsey is the opposite of that. Uh, the text describes Ramsey fighting like a butcher. Um, he is just messy in everything he does. Why would Roos tolerate him? Why would Roos legitimize him? Or seek to have uh, King Tommen legitimize him as his new heir? Especially if, and this is really damning evidence, Roos has just remarried this Frey woman, and she becomes pregnant, and I don't know if he just married her thinking, like, oh, sweet, I get this awesome, like, you know, bridal gift from Walder Frey of, like, a bunch of silver. I, I don't really need to care about any potential heirs from her. Maybe he is just that cynical, and he's like, wow, because he admits that Ramsay will probably... <laughs> try to kill whatever, you know, true-born children result from his marriage to, to Lady Walda. Um, just as he suspects Ramsay for killing his, uh, his first son, Domeric Bolton, who, you know, I mean, House Bolton has many, many disturbing tales are told about House Bolton throughout the, the histories, um, including that, you know, there, there's, Sigil is a flayed man, um, including, you know, some of the stories are told that they, uh, were one of the age-old adversaries of House Stark, and that after, uh, killing or capturing members of House Stark in battle, they would wear their flayed skins as cloaks. Um, this is kind of interesting because it points to something else that's kind of in theory space, is that uh, we know people who are capable of telepathically bonding with and uh, taking over uh, animals are called skin changers. Um, that's not literally what's happening, but that's the name. Um, so it could point to that early Starks were skin changers in such, specifically wargs, wargs being skin changers of wolves, that early Starks were skin changers in such great numbers, um, as we have not seen in many centuries. The, the current generation of House Stark somehow is popping off with the skin changing ability, um, but it could be that the Starks have been skin changers for, you know, or were thousands of years back, and House Bolton recognized that and maybe thought that one way to, you know, prevent them from skin changing was to flay them or something. That there's some kind of correlation there. And I'm not, you know, forgiving that practice. It's pretty barbaric and, and awful, but um, in any case, but maybe there's some kind of causal link, and it's not just that they were that they were, you know, out there to torture and brutalize their captives. Um, you know, apropos
apropos of nothing, I guess. I don't know. Still bad, but... Uh, so... Yeah, but it, it kind of looked like Domeric Bolton was looking to be okay. He was kind of quiet and bookish and played the harp. And, uh, you know, if he had, you know, risen to be, to succeed Roos as, uh, Lord Domeric Bolton, uh, of the Dreadfort, then things might look a little bit different from that sector of the North. Uh, instead, he died young, probably killed by Ramsay, um, and Roos Bolton instead entrusts the future of his, of his rule to his insane bastard son, Ramsay. Um, so what can we glean from this? Uh, the Bolton theory seeks to address this, this inconsistency, this curiosity of the Bolton succession by saying, and here's a, yeah, no, I'll get to that. Um, seeks to address this by by saying that the Boltons, that Roos Bolton, or the creature who goes by the name of Roos Bolton, is actually some kind of immortal vampiric being who takes on the face and identity, perhaps not unlike the faceless men of Bravos do, uh, who takes on the identity of each successive Lord Bolton. And... <coughs> excuse me. Quick water break. Um, so... Yeah, perhaps that uh, there has been one Lord Bolton since time immemorial, and he doesn't really care who the heir is, um, who, you know, the... who the successor will be, or what, what his character is like, because he will be... you know, he will endure and, you know, remain in power, basically. Um... Now there's a couple, a couple thoughts here. For one, what if this uses the same technology as skin changing? We know it's possible to skin change humans. Uh, we know that it's abominable to do so, that it's the ultimate, like, wrenching away of another human being's uh, volition and uh, control over their own bodies. It's, it's a terrible act. Um, this kind of gets into another theory, is that Bran is actually, you know, way, way darker of a figure than we suspect, because even at the tender age of, how old is he, nine or ten? Even at that tender age, he is, uh, he has skin-changed Hodor uh, to various ends. Um, you can say those ends maybe, you know, justify... No. Can you? <laughs> I don't know. Are they justifiable? Um, is it ever justifiable? Uh, 
but Brand seems, um, you know, comfortable taking over Hodor when the need strikes. Uh, there's also some pretty disturbing imagery used to describe uh, what's going on in Hodor's mind when Bran takes control. Uh, it says, the text says that uh, Hodor kind of shrinks away and curls up like a beaten dog. Um, yeah, not, not great, not great. And uh, yeah, Bran is young. Um, you could say that he was raised well, or he, he's, uh, you know, should have the right you know, values, right, moral centering, as well as one can have in this world, but he's still, uh, doing some pretty, pretty twisted things, and as, you know, potential future Three-Eyed Crow could continue to do some twisted things, observe some twisted things, um, potentially even send dreams to people to manipulate them, um, so... We know that skin-changing people is possible. Another another person does it in the Dance with Dragons prologue. Veramir Sixskins um, attempts to wrench away the body of a wildling woman who is like him, fleeing from the aftermath of the the battle at the at Castle Black. Um, that the you know uh, the uh, the the wildlings are fleeing after the defeat of Mance Raider, and, uh, Veramir is without his, uh, his six, you know, other skins, his animals, um, and so he's like, you'll do, I'm just gonna grab this body, yoink. He tries it, and is not successful, as powerful a skin changer as he is, though there's evidence that Bran is a one-in-a-million powerful skin changer, uh, um, more beyond, you know, any in his generation or even, you know, many previous generation. So, anyway, um, if the creature known as Roose Bolton now, you know, per the theory, if he's been skin-changing people for centuries or millennia, that's like the most compounded abomination you can imagine. Like taking over people who are, you know, ostensibly your son over and over and over again um, throughout time. <laughs> and I don't know. I, I don't know if we've ever been really given, you know, if we've ever really been given... Uh, an example of a, a Bolton who, a Lord Bolton who fell in battle, you know, if that's the case, then maybe he would not have a window to possess his son in turn. Um, who knows how that, that type of thing would be accomplished, but it is kind of interesting, you know, hearkening back to the, um, the imagery of the flayed man of a Bolton skin changer, uh, that, that would be pretty, pretty potent. Um, it lines up in a, in a lyrical way, even though it's the most grisly thing you can imagine. Um, so, yeah, interesting concept, though. And, uh, yeah, Bolton. That would explain why Roos is, like, pretty okay with Ramsey. I mean, it kind of wouldn't, really, because you would think that if you were to take over the body of, you know, Ramsey Bolton and then have to act the rest of your life as though you were Ramsey Bolton. 
like you would still think that him running roughshod and causing all these problems and offending all these people, you know, to put it mildly, uh, would still be a problem for you, right? So it doesn't fully explain that away. But, you know, interesting, interesting theory. Um, and I do like some of the, the kind of, you know, narrative, symbolic, uh, uh, you know, flourishes that would introduce into the story. Again, like, you know, if it's possible that that's the case, how would we learn that that's the case? I don't know. Unless the lid would really have to be blown off the whole magic thing, or we have an omniscient third-person observer, like, you know, a Bran, uh, you know, like, observing one Bolton, like, changing to the other. The other kind of problem with it is, uh, we're told that, we're told by Jojen, uh, Jojen warns Bran, um, not to dwell too long in, uh, summer, that, uh, he could lose his humanity he could lose himself and become the wolf. Um, that's, you know, it's possible that a Bolton, like, at some point you get to the ship of Theseus and, like, is this immortal Bolton really, you know, the same individual, the same being as he was centuries ago after inhabiting so many different minds. It's possible that, no, they're, they're, you know, you kind of become different. So even this as a, as a, um, a proof against death or some sort of form of immortality, uh, it is not truly because there's not, there's no maintaining the self in that sort of situation. Still, uh, incredible to, uh, uh, to think of. Another skin-changing theory, skin-changing skin adjacent theory, I guess, is, uh, John. So John is, at the end of Dance with Dragons, uh, stabbed by his comrades, um, some, uh, a small group of, uh, uh, what's, what's the term? Mutineers, um, including Bowen Marsh, who, so most of these mutineers, uh, were not thrilled with the way that Jon Snow was leading the Night's Watch, like some of the, um, lo logistical or, um, some of the decisions he was making for the the winter, you know, food stores and so forth. Most of all, though, the fact that he let the wildlings through the wall um, under, you know, terms of peace and was starting to integrate them into northern society and into uh, the Night's Watch. Many of the, the wildlings, um, there, there are a number of wildlings who are working with the Night's Watch, but have not said the Night's Watch vows. 
but they're still, like, staffing Night's Watch castles and so forth. Um, and that has rubbed some people really wrong. Also, like, Jon Snow, like, in many ways, he's, like, the, the obvious successor to, uh, Gior Mormont. Um, he was Mormont's steward. Uh, he is, though a bastard, still of Stark, uh, heritage. Um, and the Starks have a lot of cachet with the Night's Watch still. Um, he's a Stark. He was given Mormon's sword, Longclaw. Um, in many ways, he was kind of Mormon's chosen successor. But the fact remains that he did, you know, like, ostensibly to, you know, survive the wildlings and return. Um, but still, it doesn't look great. The optics aren't great, right? That he supposedly abandoned the watch and um, took up with this wildling woman while he was, you know, across the wall. And obviously he kind of had to do it for survival. There's some people who might even recognize that per wildling custom, um, John taking Egret prisoner uh, kind of means that he, you know, uh, you know, there's, there's a wildling custom that, uh, of, of marriage that begins with elope, sort of an elopement, um, where the woman is sort of, like, kidnapped away from her, her family or, uh, village by, um, by a man, uh, from another village, and, you know, for all the, like, kind of, you know, sort of uncomfortable questions of consent that that might raise, like, we are told by a couple, at least two wildling women that it's, you know, generally, like, if the woman is not keen on the man, then, like, uh, uh, he will, uh, feel the consequences. <laughs> um, in any case, uh, so, yeah, some wildlings, or some Night's Watchmen may recognize that John kind of basically, like, you know, married Egret per wildling custom by taking her, you know, uh, prisoner, so to speak, and her not, you know, really resisting. And it's even possible that she was kind of there, um, with that particular group of, uh, wildlings. Like, why were they, you know, just three guys out in the middle of nowhere, so close to this uh, Night's Watch scouting party and so far from the the rest of the Wildling army. Um, it's possible that she was even trying to, like, honeypot him a little bit. Like, I don't know if I believe that, but it's, it's kind of hard to ignore the faint possibility. Um, anyway, so, yeah, John, John has some, in some ways, he's a popular candidate for you know, Lord Commander, but in other ways, he kind of only won by subterfuge. Sam convinces his two main rivals in the election 
um, or two of his rivals, not even two of his primary rivals. Um, the lordly, uh, uh, I forget his first name, but he's a Malister, um, Sir Malister to, um, duck out of the election as well as Cotter Pike. Um, each of these, these two guys, uh, command a castle, the other castles, there are only three manned castles along the wall of the, the many that have been built across its history. Um, Jason Malister, maybe? Is that a different guy? Dennis Malister, it's Dennis Malister. Um, so Dennis Malister is kind of the high society, you know, lordly member of the Night's Watch. Um, he, he commands the Shadow Tower, and then Cotter Pike commands each watch by the sea. Um, and they both, you know, attract a, a faction within the Night's Watch for that election. Um, Sam basically convinces the other one, convinces each of them that the other one, because Malister and Pike hate each other, they're just, like, different. They, they just, you know, one is high society, one is, like, a bastard from one of the more maligned of the Seven Kingdoms. Um, they're, they're kind of opposites. And, uh, so Sam convinces each of them to drop out because to drop out and throw their support to Jon Snow because um, the other is going to win unless that happens. Um, but there's maybe something more to it. Like, like they're going to... I forget what it is. But anyway, he, he basically, like, double-crosses them both, convinces them both to drop out and support Jon Snow. Um, the other candidate who was rising in the polls day by day uh, was Janice Slint, who, of course, was the uh, captain of the Gold Cloaks, um, installed by, I want to say, Littlefinger, um, who Tyrion throws out on his ass. He's like an up-jumped uh, butcher who is, at one point for his role in, uh, the, in stopping Ned's coup, um, Joffrey awarded him Hall of all castles, like, this guy who had never been a lord was now a lord, and lord of, like, the largest and mightiest castle in the Riverlands. Um, not saying, you know, common folks shouldn't have shouldn't have castles in this setting, but, you know, politically, wow, what a move. Um, anyway, so, so Tyrion, you know, because he has no allies, basically, Tyrion, like, you know, throws him out, sends him to the, the Night's Watch, and he is kind of viewed as, like, the Lannister-friendly candidate, because even though Tyrion didn't like him, Tyrion was no longer hand at some point. Um, and he generally was kind of jiving with... Janice Slint was jiving with uh, Joffrey and then Tommen and Cersei and, uh, you know, so, like, he was kind of viewed as the Lan pro-Lannister candidate, uh, the pro-Iron Throne candidate. Um, so, 
yeah, Janice Slint was also rising in the polls. Um, but yeah, John, John ekes out a victory, uh, also due to kind of a, a strange incident in which Mormon's Raven, uh, pops out of a, a kettle and screams snow. So like, you know, which remember is just a word, <laughs> you know, it also is John's last name, but it is also a word. Um, and it's kind of sus, you know, like was somebody skin changing this raven? Like, why do they talk? Why do they say the things they do? You always have to listen to the ravens. Um, but yeah, so, so, you know, John is elected, but he starts, you know, using his power pretty, um, unilaterally and stridently. And, you know, people don't all love that. I was getting back to how he's skin changing. Yeah. So, so John is stabbed by these mutineers. The, his last chapter in A Dance with Dragons ends with everything going cold. So he's probably dying, right? Like, he, he dies in the show. It seems very likely that he's, you know, things are not looking good. However, Melisandre's at the wall. She's never raised somebody from the dead before, but she's a red priest. Thoros Amir is a red priest, and he raised, uh, uh, what's his face? Um, a bunch of times. Um, Beric Dondarrion. Uh, so, you know, it stands to reason that maybe in a moment of desperation, you know, because John was also collaborating with Stannis. This is the other thing. Another element of John's unpopularity was that some people really did not like that he was working with Stannis, who at this point is just kind of like a rogue agent, you know, leading his army around uh, the, the wall and the, the north. Um, and some people thought, listen, the War of Five Kings is, like, is over. Like, Stannis lost. We shouldn't be working with him. We, we gotta just, like, submit to King Tommen. You know, let's call it a day. Let's get in their good books again. Um, it'll be good for the Night's Watch and better for the realm. Uh, that's the case, anyway. So, so, yeah, um... John is, is stabbed by the mutineers and it's, you know, people theorize that because of, uh, something that we see in Veramir's prologue in A Dance with Dragons, that, uh, skin, powerful skin changers, and we know that John is a skin changer, that, you know, he, he does not, as much as Bran does, consciously control Ghost, but Ghost definitely influences his emotional state, definitely, you know, reinforces his connection to the Starks and the North and the Old Gods. He, this is astoundingly interesting. John is offered a pretty sweet deal by, by Stannis. He says, look, if you support me as Lord Commander of the, if you as Lord Commander of the Night's Watch, uh, support me in my claim as, as, as King, king of, of Westeros, of the Seven Kingdoms, um, king on the Iron Throne, you support my claim. Once I get this thing shored up, I'm going to make you, I'm going to legitimize you as John Stark and name you Lord of Winterfell. And that's literally all John has ever wanted in his life. He's wanted to be a Stark in, in name. He 
he's wanted uh, to be at Winterfell. It would release him from its night, his nice Night's Watch vows. Stannis even offers, hey, you know that hot wildling chick uh, who is uh, Mance Raider's sister-in-law? Because Stannis recognizes her as a wildling princess, even though that's kind of not really how that works. Um, like, there is not really any nobility among the free folk. Um, they just kind of... You know, they, they kneel to people they respect, to people who have, you know, the power. Um, so, you know, Mance Raider is one of those. Mance Raider's wife's sister is not necessarily... Um, but yeah, so Stannis is like, look, we'll set up this marriage. You know, I think that's a little bit wishful thinking because we know that, you know, women of the free folk are not accustomed to arranged marriages, so that's possibly going to end badly. You know, he also has to do some kind of uh, rash things. He's got to burn the, the heart tree at Winterfell um, and submit to the Lord of Light instead of the, the old gods. He's got to, you know, get himself free of the, the Night's Watch. And this is all assuming that Stannis can defeat the Boltons, take back the North, raise the North, and and march on to Winterfell and take, or to King's Landing and take the Iron Throne. There's a lot of ifs, a lot, a lot has to happen before then, but what an astounding deal. Like, this is as much as you could ask for if you're Jon Snow. Um, and Stannis offers it freely. He, after spending some time with Ghost, decides that his duty is to the old gods, to the north, to this ancient institution that he's, he's sworn his life and, and labors to. So, anyway, just kind of an incredible, um, you know, the, the bond that he has with Ghost is not out-and-out skin-changing, but it's potent. Ghost, uh, inspires kind of a wolfishness in John at times. He, he like, sort of blacks out and goes feral uh, in the training yard at one point. Um, so John, is, John has some kind of telepathic bond with Ghost. Is he an out-and-out -out skin changer? I don't know. But then again, like, as we see in Veramir's prologue, uh, Veramir describes powerful skin changers being able to live out a second life in an animal in in something that they they take over and again you know as we've talked about with skin changing you eventually kind of your consciousness melts into that being and you lose yourself you lose your identity as as you and that creature become one um but uh he says Faramir says living living a second life in a dire wolf would be a second life fit for a king which that's interesting. <laughs> oh, speaking of, there's a theory that at the Red Wedding, Rob Stark, because his last words were Grey Wind, um, you know, Rob is sort of calling to his wolf, which is, in a, in a character sense, very sad, very tragic, kind of just reflects the boy in Rob. Like, he was 
a, a young man who was foisted into a position of authority um, well beyond his years. He had to do some some make some very difficult and brutal decisions on behalf of his people and his family that no like I, I think he's like 15 and this is the thing like we always forget how young the characters are in the books um, because their ages are not constantly given and we have the show depicting like you know Richard Madden at the time that he played Rob Stark he was like what 30 or something in his 20s um, so we think of Rob Stark as, as older, but no, he was like 15 or 16. Um, that's a position no 15 or 16 year old should have to be in. Um, but you know, at the end, here he is calling, uh, calling hopelessly for his, his, you know, pet doggo. It's really sad. <laughs> um, but to make that even sadder, there's the possibility, there's the theory, because as far as we know from the timeline, at the Red Wedding, the the violence begins inside the castle at the Twins and spreads, radiates outward. So we start with the assassination of Rob Stark and Catelyn and uh, all the, the assembled highborn guests at in the wedding hall. Um, and then it spreads out to the camps, all the encamped uh, Stark men, still loyal to the Starks, being attacked, you know, well drunk and partying, basically, being attacked by the Frey army. Um, and also outside the castle, in a pen, was Grey Wind. Um, this is one of the many red flags leading up to the Red Wedding. Um, but... In spite of Grey Wind's snarls of protest, uh, he, Rob allowed him to be separated from him and confined to a pen outside the castle. But all this to say, um, Rob likely died before Grey Wind, which means that if Rob, you know, utilizing his nascent telepathic bond to Grey Wind and calling out to him in his last breaths, uh, died and his spirit went and inhabited Grey Wind, Rob possibly was killed twice. Um, first in his own body and then as Grey Wind. Um, which is just... Uh, it's so George R. R. Martin. <laughs> really gotta twist the knife, don't you, George? Um, and that's a theory. We'll never get confirmation on that, likely. Um but I, I find that compelling. It doesn't really change the story one way or the other, but I think it's, you know, likely enough. Um, but yeah, so so back to John, because we were speaking of a dire wolf as being a second life fit for a kid. Um, so there's some possibility that rather than John's spirit fleeing his body at the time of death, that he will, he will telepathically, mentally reach out to Ghost his spirit will inhabit ghost for a time while Melisandre, you know, well, things develop at the wall. Melisandre kind of, like, gets her bearings and decides, like, hey, I, I've heard there's this other red priest who's I'm hearing is, like, raising people from the dead. I wonder if I could do that. Or who knows how she comes around to deciding to try performing this ritual. 
Um, who knows if it even is a ritual as the show presented, and maybe it's just sort of a, excuse me, um, maybe it's just sort of like, you know, a, a kiss of life, so to speak. And I'm not saying that she literally kisses him, but, you know, a laying on of hands, as it were, um, some expression of sympathy or, you know, wish for him to live that manifests as some true religious ritual that, you know, brings him back from the dead, that calls back his spirit. Um, if that's the case, wouldn't it be kind of interesting if, uh, his spirit returns from ghost? And now here's the thing, we don't really know, like, we know from Beric that his, each time he returns, he's a little bit less. That could just be that his spirit, uh, has been, you know, off wandering the void and, you know, parts of it kind of dissipate before he's able to return back to his body. Um, maybe in John's case, that wouldn't really be the case. Uh, there are some who theorize that if this comes to pass, that John, upon his return, for one, will be kind of a, a zombie. He'll be kind of like skin changing his own body. He won't be, you know, organically connected to, you know, his, his mind won't be organically connected to his body as a living person's would. And that maybe that will make him unable to, you know, have children. Um, there's some theory that that is already the case with Danny, that maybe she died on the pyre and, uh, was somehow brought back. Um, who knows? Um, it would be kind of an interesting parallel if that were the case. Um, but yeah, maybe he comes back and he's, he's somehow less. Maybe he comes back and due to his time in, spent in ghost body, that he's a little bit more wolfish, a little bit, uh, uh, you know, maybe due to the combined, the combination of being, inhabiting a direwolf's body and having been assassinated by men he deemed his comrades, uh, maybe John is just going to be kind of like, you know, less of an idealist, more of a, uh, you know, a little bit more wolfish and more violent and, uh, yeah, you know, we could see it. Maybe, uh, the true tragedy is not that his life was lost, but that, uh, he was, you know, this idealistic hero who stood for the unity of, of all humankind um, should be so twisted and, and perverted in this way. Um, I could see that. Okay, so I think we're, we're at a good, yeah, we're over time. I think I'm going to call it here. Uh, just pulling up to, to home as we speak. But, um, yeah, so I, I think, uh, skin changing is probably the most interesting and low-key most prolific aspect of, of magic in this work. Um, you could say that, uh, you know, other examples of skin changing include Melisandre birthing shadow babies. Um, that maybe in some way she's skin changing or 
uh, giving Stannis the ability, if the shadows look like Stannis, to skin change the air in some way. Like, where are the limits? And furthermore, uh, maybe the Targaryen-Dragon connection is also a form of skin changing. You know, it's, it's possible that, you know, we think of skin changing as being very associated with warging and controlling wolves, but maybe it accounts for any, you know, uh, deep connection that a person has with an animal um, or a beast of any kind, dragons. Uh, so anyway, I think that's probably the, the neatest, you know, magical aspect of these books. And I'm excited to, I, I sure hope we'll get to learn more or see more of its uh, qualities and limitations in future books. But, you know, I might, I might come back to this at some point. There's so many interesting uh, Song of Ice and Fire theories to cover. I was going to talk about um, the potential Targaryen parentage of uh, the Lannister siblings. Um, that's a dude. That's uh, another one I, I think I would believe also. Um, well, more on that later. But in the meantime, thank you guys so much for listening, uh, especially if you stuck it out this far. Uh, hope you had fun. I know I do recording these. Uh, once again, credit to Scott Suter for the intro and outro themes. Go find him on SoundCloud. And yeah, we'll catch you back here next time. Bye-bye.